Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And as you are turning, um, let me say thank you for your hospitality and for the opportunity to be here. There it is. I thought I had another one up here. Good. I may need that one. I'm having a little bit of trouble with my voice this morning, so pardon me if I have to uh, clear my throat or drink some water during the time. You know, it's, um, and I appreciate the accommodation in the order of service this morning. I have an agreement with all the airlines that if I'm not there when it's time to go, they're to feel free to leave without me. And uh, they usually take me up on that. So uh, in order to make the schedule and uh, I have to connect in Atlanta and so forth and be home uh, late tonight back in Louisville, I have to leave uh, earlier than the schedule, normal schedule would have permitted. So thank you for accommodating that. And it's, it's a great blessing to come to a place that you've not been before, but realize that you have so many uh, previously established connections. Um, in uh, January of 1981, uh, Bill Bushhouse played a very decisive role in my life uh, that uh, was very determinative in much of God's direction in my life. And uh, uh, he was not aware of that at the time, but fasting and praying led to a decision in his life that affected my life. And uh, I, I'm very grateful for that. But I haven't spent two hours with Bill since then. And the Lord has given us the opportunity to fellowship just a bit here, and I'm grateful for that. I have uh, students from my classes in seminary who are in this church um, uh, and and just other connections that, uh, uh, you know, I I didn't even know until after this was arranged. Pastor, thank you for the hospitality that you and your wife and your family have given to me. Uh, I've enjoyed that very much. Cody, for the work that you did in uh, setting all this up, all the emails that we had and arranging that for being flexible on the schedule here for uh, Chris and hauling me around and all the details of the sound and all these things. Thank you very much for that. Another connection I didn't realize until just, in fact, two or three days ago. Uh, My daughter went through College Plus, and of course, Paul uh, is employed there, and others are connected with College Plus, and that was... uh, best decision we ever made in involving uh, ourselves there. And so all of this um, I, I was not aware of uh, when we first came here. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a great blessing to be here. Thank you all. Thank you all for that. There's a wonderful promise in Romans 8.31 where the Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? How do you know if God is for you? That's a very important question when you consider the alternative. The alternative is God being against you. If God is against you, there isn't much hope, is there? So how do you know whether God supports you or whether he does not? If you want very much to be married, but nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? And if you marry the person of your dreams, does that mean God is for you? But then if the marriage breaks apart, does that mean that God is against you? If you lose your job or you can't get a job, is God against you? And if you experience unprecedented job success, does that mean God is for you? If you live in your dream house, does that mean God is for you? And if you can't stand the place where you live, 
does that mean God is against you? If you always have money trouble, does that mean God is against you? Everything's always breaking down around the house. Is God against you? If you want the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, does that mean God is for you? If someone you love very dearly dies, despite your prayers that they would live, does that mean God is against you? If you want a child but remain unable to have a child, does that mean God is against you? And if you have all the children that you wanted and they turn out wonderfully, does that mean God is for you? How do you know if God is for you or if God is against you? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things that I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other. For all of the good things that I have mentioned have happened to those that God is dead set against. And all of the bad things I've mentioned have happened to those that God is clearly and decidedly for. So how do you know if God is for you or if God is against you? Well, the main way we know that God is for us is because of what the Bible says he has done for us. Because of what the Bible says he has done for us. Because of the unchanging truth of Scripture, not because of changing circumstances. Now, in the text, I call your attention to the fact there are two short sentences here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? At the beginning of the second sentence is there little word, if. Many of you would know that in the Greek language in which this was first written, uh, there were several ways, several different words, in fact, they could use to write different shades of the meaning of if. Now, we only have one word, if, but our context will tell us that. In other words, someone might say, well, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. So they, they might or they might not, depending upon the circumstances. But another person might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. Okay? So they are going regardless of the circumstances. But in both cases, they use the word if. Well, in the beginning of this second sentence in verse 31, it's that second kind of if. That if that could almost be translated as since. If God is for us and he is, Paul would say. Who is against us? But notice how the first sentence ends. What then shall we say to these things? And you can almost see the Apostle Paul ponder for a moment. What do we say to these things? And then he decides, here's what we say. If God is for us, who is against us? And so these things convince Paul and should convince us as believers in Christ that he is for us. So what are these things that were so persuasive to Paul and should be to those in Christ this morning? Well, in one sense, these things are the whole book of Romans up to this point. But more specifically, it's the context of the previous paragraph, the things he has just written. These are the things that convince the Apostle Paul and should convince us God is for us. So in the immediate paragraph, beginning verses 26 and 27, we know that God is for us because of the Holy Spirit he gives us who prays for us when we don't know what to say. Look at verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he, that's the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, given to the believer, is, because he, the Holy Spirit living in the believer, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Bible says here we don't really know how to pray as we ought. And there are times we're so aware of that. We don't know. We're so perplexed by the possibilities. We don't know the will of God. And we are so flummoxed by what what is before us. We don't know what to pray. And there are times when you can't pray. Not only because you're so confused, but maybe your heart is so heavy. Your heart is so broken. All you can do is sort of cast yourself across the bed and cry out, Oh, God. All you can do is just sort of groan Godwardly. There are times when you may be so, uh, so much in physical pain or because of surgery or something else, you're so medicated, you can't put two thoughts together in your mind. You are so burdened, you are so in pain, you are so medicated that you are physically unable to put two words together. And all you can do is sort of groan Godwardly. Well, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit encodes upon those groans prayers for us. And not just any prayers, but he prays the very will of God. Think about that. In those worst moments in life, when you most desperately need prayer, but you don't know what to pray, or you're literally unable to pray. God is not a heaven going wringing his hands as though bless her heart, bless his heart. If he could just pray, I could do something. Oh, if he would just utter some prayer, I could help. But rather, the Spirit himself intercedes for us at those times. And he intercedes not just any prayer, but the very will of God, as though we need to be told that. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would consider it's pretty close to the same percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you say? But the Spirit himself prays for us. In those worst moments in life, when you don't know what to pray, when you can't pray, and you just groan Godwardly, the Spirit of God can encode upon those groans prayers for you, but not any prayer, just the very will of God. And Paul says... If God will do that for me, God is for me. But then he goes on. Still talking about these things that convinced him and ought to convince us that God is for us. That famous verse 28, we know God is for us because it says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. And we've come to the place where we've all seen people and heard of people so flippantly using this that I fear perhaps we've gone the other direction and we don't use it as often as we should. Now, indeed, you don't give Romans 8.28 when someone's living on the raw edge of pain. When they are maybe crying out and angrily saying, why? But that's not the time because that's not a serious inquiry. That's someone living on the raw edge of pain, and that's not the time to give them Romans 8.28. But the time comes when they are seriously looking for answers. And we don't want to abandon the precious promise in Romans 8.28. But when do we turn to that? When do we find it such a comfort? It's in the, the most difficult moments of life. 
And have you ever noticed how it begins there? And we know, he says, we know this precious promise of verse 28. Well, how do we know? Have you ever connected it with what we just saw? The precious promise of the Holy Spirit praying for you in the worst moments in life? The moments when we lean on Romans 8, 28? We can know, Paul says, that God is causing all things to work together for our good, our ultimate good and His glory, because the Spirit of God is praying for us at those times. That's the precious part of that promise. That's why we know Romans 8.28 is true because the Spirit Himself is praying for us and He's praying the very will of God. And for that reason, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who call according to His purpose. And that means that everything in the life of a Christian, everything in the life of a Christian, even those things that are evil, God causes to work together with other things for our ultimate good and for His glory. Have you ever seen the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28, Psalm 119? For all things are your servants, even the devil, as Martin Luther said. Yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. He can't do anything unless God permits that, as the book of Job shows us. Now understand, this is not the Bible teaching us to put rose-colored glasses on things and, and call good thing, or evil things good. No, saying God can take even evil things and in His almighty hands perform a divine alchemy that turns them into gold, into our eternal good and His glory. But He's not telling us, well, just look for the silver lining. Just put on rose-colored glasses and look for the good in everything. There are some things in which there is no good. The work of Satan, other things that are pure evil, Things that God himself would say, that is pure evil. And you are right to call it pure evil. And there is no good in it. And I'm not asking you to find something positive when there is nothing positive. But what God is saying to us, in those things that are even pure evil, in which there is no good thing, God has the power to take that which is pure evil and in his almighty hands perform a divine alchemy that transforms it into our eternal good and his glory. And that is much more than just saying he neutralizes it so that it doesn't hurt us anymore. God doesn't just promise to neutralize the worst things that ever happened to us so that we don't remember them in eternity anymore and they don't hurt us in eternity anymore. He turns them into gold. What's the worst thing that ever happened to you? I'm sure that in a congregation this size, there are things that could be mentioned that maybe somebody should be put in prison for. There are unspeakably horrible things that have happened in a group of this size. And I've lived long enough to have some pretty awful things happen to me. And you, you live long enough, you accumulate some, some very painful memories. People you love very dearly will die. You live long enough, everyone you love will die. And in recognition of that, I, I, this verse tells us that God demonstrates that He is for us by taking the very worst things that have ever happened and turning them into that which is ultimately for our good and for God's glory. And the only way that we can take that is by faith. Because there are some things that just are too painful. And in this life, we never can see any good in them. But a Christian can say by faith, I take the word of God here. 
and that he can take the worst things that have ever happened to me and in eternity not just neutralize them so the the pain is gone and the memory is gone. He turns them into something that is actually something we praise God for so that we can say only by faith and without perhaps any heart and feelings whatsoever, but by faith we can say that if we knew everything God knew and we had his heart, that's very important, If we knew everything God knew and we had his heart, we would have allowed everything into our lives that God has allowed. Only by faith can we take that. Because God promises he will take the worst things, everything that happens to us, and combine them with other things, working them in such a way that in eternity we are praising God for those things. You take sodium, it'll kill you. You take chloride, it will kill you. You work them together, and in the right amounts, they can be good for you. They can be helpful. Salt can be beneficial. God can take things that are evil in and of themselves, but he causes them to work together, says Romans 8, 28. He causes them to work together in ways we could never figure out, we could never plan, and we could never understand. But in eternity, we will say, thank God for that. The Apostle Paul says, you know what? If God will do that for me, God is for me. If he will take the worst things that have ever happened to me and turn them into that which doesn't just neutralize, but turn them into good, God is for me. See, for the unbeliever, God causes all things to work together for evil. God will cause things in the life of the unbeliever, the greatest blessings that he ever gives to the unbeliever, All eternity they will wish they had never received those blessings because they did not thank God for them. They did not use them for God's glory. And so for all eternity they will be held accountable and punished for those things that were good and they misused them and they were ungrateful and they used them selfishly. And for all eternity they will wish they had never received those good things. But for God's people... He promises he can take the worst things that have ever happened to us. And for all eternity, we will be grateful for those things because of what God does for us through them. And that's hard to see now. It's impossible to see with some things now. But that is the great promise of God in this passage. Now, it's one thing to reach a place in life where you can look back and you can see some of the horrible things that happened. And see how God used them. And thank God for them. There was a time back in January of 1981, I wasn't real happy with Bill. (laughs) And a vote in a church there that I was hopeful of going to. Actually, I was really just trying to escape a very difficult situation. But because of a prayerful choice he made and a couple of other people made, I, I did not go to that situation. And it would have been a disaster if I had. But furthermore, six weeks later, God had something much better for me. It's one thing to look in the back, and and some of you heard me say, in uh, 1980, I became pastor of a little church. I was the 17th pastor in 21 years at this little country church. Uh, It's a statistic that tells me far more today than it did when I was 25. And uh, my wife and I had five hospitalizations and three surgeries from 15 months of stress. Uh, in that church and uh, both of us were told you can never be parents because of the stresses and things that happened 
But then, because we didn't go to Florida, six weeks later, the Lord opened a door for us in a, a wonderful church in the Chicago area, and we were there 15 years, a year for every month in this difficult situation in this other church. And he turned our morning into dancing. And through that, there were connections that were made there and things that happened there that enabled me to do what I'm doing today. And when I first went to that church in Chicago, see, they, they were without a pastor for two years. In the middle of that was that 15-month period I was in this rural church. And if I had gone to that church in Chicago instead of that rural situation, I would have ruined that wonderful church in Chicago. I wasn't ready for that. And I would have ruined a good church. But the Lord used the pressure cooker of that 15 months to prepare us for 15 wonderful years. And so once we got to that church in Chicago, I would look back and say, now I see why God allowed that. God allowed us to go through that for a greater blessing later on. And that's the reason, that's what I thought was the reason why we went through that until I started teaching in a seminary. And now I look out every day at students who are pastoring that same church, if you know what I mean. And it makes a world of difference to say, I have been there. And now I think I fully see why God permitted us to go through that situation during those 15 months. And for those of you who don't know, the rest of the story is God gave us a baby and bifocals the same year. <laughs> 16 years later, got a baby and bifocals the same year. We went, went through College Plus. So it's one thing to look in the past and say, now I see what God was doing. Now I see how God was using that for our good later on. And it's one thing to look into the future and say, yes, I believe that everything that will happen to me out there will be for my ultimate good and for God's glory. And I can say that rather glibly because I haven't experienced it yet. I haven't felt the pain of those things yet. I haven't been disillusioned yet by the circumstances in the future. But you know what's really hard to believe in most cases? It's believing that God is doing that in my life today. To survey my life today, looking at the things that if it were within my power, I would take them out of my life and I would dramatically change them. And to believe that in those things now, God is causing those things to work together for my good and his glory. But that's what the passage is calling us to, that God governs and overrules everything, including everything in our life right now. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? I have been stoned multiple times. I've been left for dead. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten times without number. I've received 39 lashes. I can remember how many times that happened to me. And he goes all through these things and he says, you know what? If God will do that, if he will take all that and use it for my ultimate good... None of those things I would have chosen to experience. All of them I wish I could have avoided. But I believe God used all those things for my good. You just consider the man who, who wrote Romans 8.28. You consider what he had been through. Far worse than what almost any of us have ever been through. When he said that, he said, I believe God is for me. If he'll take the worst things that have ever happened to me and turn them into my good... God is for me. And then he says, 
right before Romans 8.31, something else that convinced him that God was for him. Verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, many made like Jesus. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you are in Christ, God foreknew you, verse 29 says. And it means more than God just knew about you in advance. It means more than God just looked down through time and saw things that you would choose and and knew about you. No, it's more intimate than that. It's closer to the meaning of God foreloved you. He knew you intimately in advance. And knowing all about you, knowing all about your sins that you would commit, knowing about everything you would ever do, He loved you anyway, and he predestined you to be like Jesus Christ. If we had believed, if the Bible taught that he had predestined us to be like angels, which is apparently what a lot of people believe because they envision heaven, you know, and people somehow morph into angels with wings and all this sort of thing. But if he had said we are going to be made like angels, we would have praised God forever. Remember the apostle John a man who had been at the side of Jesus day and night for three years, who, when the Lord appears to him and gives him the revelation at the end of our Bible, twice when these angels appear to the Apostle John in presumably just a 15-watt bulb version of their glory, twice he falls on his face to worship them, and they say, don't do that. Worship God. I think John had pretty good theology, don't you? John had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John had seen Jesus ascend to heaven. John had seen a lot of miraculous things, and he had a pretty good theology by the time the book of Revelation comes around. And yet, knowing that you don't worship angels, knowing that Jesus is infinitely above the angels, knowing all of that, when angels appeared to him, he fell on his face and worshiped them. It was reflexive. He couldn't help it. If the Bible said we were going to be made like As glorious as angels, we would have been stunned forever that we got to share such glory. But it's better than that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We are going to be made like Jesus Christ. Not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods. Rather, we're going to be made like Jesus in his sinless, perfect humanity. Not as our Mormon friends believe. Not made like Jesus in in divinity. We're going to be made like him sinlessly reflecting the humanity that he gives us perfectly forever and ever. But not only that. Whom he predestined, these he also called. He called you when he had no obligation to do so. There was that Thursday night there in Osceola, Arkansas, during a series of meetings, God called me. There was a Sunday night for you. There was perhaps a study in a dorm room. There was some other time maybe on the radio or reading the Bible. God called you. And you had been under the general call of the gospel perhaps many times before. And you hadn't perhaps rejected anything you had ever heard before in family worship or in church. But there was a time God called you. And like coming into the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. He called Lazarus and not the other corpses. If he had just said, come forth, they all would have come forth. But Lazarus came forth and there were others sitting behind you and beside you as they were with me on that Thursday night. 
they didn't receive the same kind of call that night that I did. God called me, and he had no obligation to do so. But he called me, raised me from the dead spiritually. And whom he called, Paul says, these he also justified. A word that means far more than just, if we may say, the mere forgiveness of sins. Because that takes the infinite sins we have committed and brings us back to zero, to neutral. But you have to have more to go to heaven than no sin. You must have infinite righteousness, and we have none. And to be justified is far more than just the forgiveness of sins because that brings you to neutral. Rather, he, he declares us righteous, giving us the righteousness of God in Christ. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero, neutral. <laughs> no, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when we believe into Christ, and that's what the word believe means. It doesn't just mean we believe, believe the truth about Jesus. It means to be believe into Jesus. We are united by faith. You've heard that before. We believe into Jesus. And we are given credit for his life. Think of that. God looks upon you once you are in Christ as though you lived the life of Jesus Christ. As though you healed those people. As though you said those words. As though you had the pure heart of Christ. As though you had the pure mind of Christ. And on the cross, he looked upon Jesus as though he lived my life. And you know what? My life got the perfectly pure Jesus. The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. Think of that. He gave you credit for living the life of Jesus. And then, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Made like Christ for all eternity future. And it is so certain in the mind of God that it's past tense in Romans 8.30. Even though it's future to us. And the Apostle Paul says, whoa. What do I say to that? What do I say to all these things? What things, Paul? He gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I don't even know what to pray. When I can't pray, He, the Holy Spirit Himself, it says, prays for me. And He prays the very will of God. And for that reason, I know that God causes all things in my life, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, to work together for my good. Not just neutralizing them so they don't hurt me in eternity anymore and I don't remember them. But he takes the very worst things, everything in my life, and turns them into my good forever and ever. And then, in eternity past, knowing all about me, knowing all the wickedness that would dwell in my heart, all the thoughts that would be generated by my sinful mind, knowing all about the sin factory that perpetually beats out sin from my heart, Knowing all of that, he loved me anyway. And he predestined me to be not just like an angel, but like Jesus. And he called me when I was running away from him, when I was spiritually dead and he had no obligation. He called me to himself. And then he gave me credit for living the life of Jesus. And he's already declared and then fixed in his mind that I will be like Jesus forever and ever. You know what I say to that? God is for me. And if God is for me, who is against me? 
That's what we say to these things. Well, if God is for me like this, it's natural to respond, then why is my life so hard? I'm reminded of the devotional book for junior hires, which the title of which is, If God is for me, why can't I get my locker open? <laughs> well, life is hard because we do have forces against us. When it says, if God is for us, it doesn't say then that therefore nothing is against us. There's a story in the Old Testament, Judges 6. And you know the pattern of the book of Judges. They would be faithful to God and he would bless them, but then they'd turn away and follow idols. And then so he would allow their enemies to come in and overwhelm them and, and to discipline them and turn their hearts back to God. And so this cycle repeats itself through the book of Judges. And so it was one of those down times when the people were away from God and, and God was about to raise up a leader to lead them back to God. And he was going to do that with a man named Gideon. But this is one of those tough times and he was allowing their enemies, the Midianites, to come in and just raid the people and take what they wanted. And the Midianites would wait until the crops were raised and harvested. And then after all the work was done, they'd come in and take the harvest. Thank you very much. Well, it was one of those times and Gideon is down in a hole in the ground in a wine press, just a small hole in the ground about the size of a baptistry, we might say. And he's down there threshing grain. And you can't put a lot in a small hole in the ground like that. So he's got the pitchfork and he throws it up and it goes just above the level of the ground, you know, and the wind blows the chaff away and it comes back down on him and he's sweaty and all this stuff's clinging all over him, you know, and he's doing all this thinking, all this just for a few loaves of bread and this is so much work and so hard and I hope the Midianites don't see me down here and so forth. And while he's doing all this and thinking about all this, suddenly this hole in the ground is illuminated and he turns around and there is an angel who appears to him and says, the Lord is with you. O valiant warrior, the Lord is with you. Like you might say, God is for you. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. <clears throat> and then I can see old Gideon. He takes that pitchfork and puts his hands on top of that and thinks for a minute and looks at this angel because he says this, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us. Why has all this happened to us? If God is for me, like Romans 8.31 says, why is my life so hard? Well, life is hard because we do have forces against us. The world is against us, as if that were insignificant. Jesus said, if the world hates me, the world will hate those who follow me. And that's increasingly so. To be a Christian is to be increasingly feel like you're swimming upstream against the culture. You stand for God's truth. We've seen people who've done that lose TV shows this week. You stand for God's truth. That's going to be increasingly penalized in this culture. And you young people especially prepare for that in ways that your parents have not known and not seen. There's going to be increasing pressure upon you 
to compromise the truth of God. Otherwise, there's going to be increasing forms of persecution. Now it may be losing jobs. It may be worse than that later on. Because to follow Christ is going to go against the spirit of the world, and that makes life harder. The world is opposed to everything you stand for as a Christian. The world is against us. The flesh is against us. The flesh is that part of us that, that's not yet been transformed by the power of God. That, that is the Spirit of God causes us to, to have this upward look, set your minds on things above, and we cry, Abba, Father, this Godward orientation of the heart and mind. So there is a, a part of us that pulls us away from God and still has an affinity towards sin like gravity. Paul says in one place, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So we don't always do what we want to do. The spirit of God prompts us to do what is right, gives us a love for what is right, a love for the word of God, a love for the things of God. But the flesh causes us to love sin. And sometimes we sin. And we sin at that moment because we want sin more than righteousness. And even after we sin, we may hate the sin and hate the choice, but yet we will do that. And that's because of the flesh, and that makes life hard because we will make choices, sinful choices that have consequences. They may have lifelong consequences on your body or on relationships. And the Bible says that in Hebrews that God disciplines his children when we do sin. He doesn't punish us. The punishment is in Christ. He disciplines us for our good because he loves us. But discipline makes life hard. The, uh, the most understated verse in the Bible, I think, and I laugh every time I read it, because many translations say in Hebrews, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. How about that for a euphemism? Next time you apply the rod to one of your younger children, you can say, now this discipline is going to seem not to be joyful. In other words, when God disciplines us, that makes life hard. And then the devil is against us. And as the devil was against Job, even though God was superintending it all, the devil made life hard for Job. And sometimes spiritual forces make life harder for us. But what is meant here? When he says, if God is for us, who is against us? It means that they cannot do any eternal harm against us. The late James Montgomery Boyce put it this way. He said, it's as though in Romans 8.31... Paul has an old-fashioned scales here. And on one side, he's putting these peanuts of the things that are against us. When he says, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, the world is against me, Paul. Okay, put a peanut over there. Plunk. And the flesh is against me. This sin factory that beats in my chest works against me and my growth and grace. All right, put that peanut over there. Plunk. And the devil certainly is against me. Okay, put that over there. Plunk. Anything else? Yeah, I think my boss is against me. Okay, plunk. Anything else? Yeah, a couple others. Plunk, plunk. And then it's as though the Apostle Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom! If God is for us, who is against us? Yes, you have forces against us, but if God is for you, who are they? What are they? So what is meant here is if God is for you, nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan for us. Because God is for us, regardless of who or what is against us. Because if God is for us, nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan for us. Remember how the previous verse, verse 30, ends. It ends by saying we're glorified. 
Well, God planned to do that, right? And he planned to do it before the foundation of the world. That's his eternal plan. And nothing or no one will stop the eternal plan of God to glorify all those who were in Christ. Nothing or no one can stop that eternal plan and ultimate plan for you. Your place in heaven is secure. Now that's not to say God is for all that we do when it says that God is for us. Parents, you're for your children all the time. That doesn't mean you're for all that they do. And the same is true with God. But the reason why nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan for us is because God has decreed it. He's decreed it. Now theologians will speak sometimes of the permissive will of God and the decretive will of God. Often we just sort of throw around the term the will of God and and sometimes it needs a little nuancing to understand that because it's not always the same thing. For example, with the permissive will of God, God's will is made plain, but he permits violations of that will. Not without consequences, but he does permit violations. For example, here is the will of God. You shall not bear false witness. That's God's will, right? Does he ever permit people to bear false witness? Every day. And we've all done it. So the will of God shall not bear false witness. He permits violations of that will, though not without consequences. That's the permissive will of God. But the decretive will of God cannot be violated. Here's the will of God too. Let there be light. Could there not have been light? No. God decreed that there would be light. And in your life, if you are in Christ, God has decreed that he will glorify you. And nothing or no one is permitted to stop that. So he permits suffering in your life, but he has decreed glory. And nothing or no one can stop that. In his permissive will, he permits us to sin. But in his decretive will, he has determined that he will save us finally from sin and glorify us and make us like Christ forever. He permits us to sin, but he has decreed we will not fall and that he will take us to heaven and glorify us forever. So when God is for you, nothing or no one can stop his eternal plan. If you are truly in Christ... You fell under false teaching in the past. Those false teachers cannot cause you to lose your salvation. If you left some group that now condemns you, there is no group, there is no official, there is no person or group that can decree that you lose your salvation. And neither unbelieving parents nor an unbelieving spouse nor an unbelieving boss can so tempt you or confine you or restrict you from following Christ like you would want to do that it would ever cause him to reject you. And when it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? My brother or sister in Christ, that who includes you. The who includes you. You did not put yourself into the grace of God. And thank God you cannot put yourself out of the grace of God. You cannot, by committing some particularly heinous sin or by repeatedly committing a sin, cause God to to finally reject you. 
Now, anyone who takes that as license to think, oh, good, I can do what I want, is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. But I mention that because of the, the, the sensitive, tortured souls who fear that because of their inability to conquer a particular sin, that they would be, the door of heaven would be shut against them, and they so desperately don't want that. They want eternal life more than anything. But that very zeal and that very spiritual sensitivity causes them to be fearful about the remaining sin in their life, and they fear that at the last God's patience would wear out and He would cast them away. And there would be many, I'm sure, in this church with such a tender conscience. God foreknew you. God knew every sin you would ever commit before he called you. And if your heart is inclined toward God in such a way that you want him more than anything else and you are fearful that the sin in your life would cause him to finally reject you, if your heart is, wants his salvation and loves him, he will in no wise cast you out. No one who ever came to Jesus was cast away. You can't nullify what God has done by what you do. He foreloved you and predestined you when he already knew how much you would sin. Now, most of the time, I feel like Jonathan Edwards when he famously said, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. I feel that way most of the time. I feel like the Apostle Paul when he said, I am the chief of sinners. And I don't think he meant that as a rhetorical device. I think he was beating his breast when he said that. At the end of his life, he wrote this. When we would say he was the godliest man probably who ever lived at that point. Yet because of that, he felt himself the chief of sinners. Because the closer one gets to Christ, the more unlike Christ they tend to feel. The closer one gets to Christ, the more aware of the sin in their life that they are. It's like you, you know, in the darkness of the 40-watt bulb in the closet, you think this shirt is white. And then you take it out in the sunlight and you think, oh my goodness, <laughs> maybe we should wash this this year since it hadn't been washed this year. In the same way, the closer you get the brightness of the holiness of God, the more unholy you see your life to be. And I think that's where Paul was. That's the way I feel most of the time. But sometimes, I'll look at someone on television, I'll see someone in the news, and I'll think, well, I'm, I haven't done that. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as Osama bin Laden. I'm not as bad as this serial killer. I'm not as bad as this person. Sometimes I think that. But you know what God knows? God knows how much more of a sinner I would have been if I'd had more opportunities to sin. God knows how much, not only all the sin I have ever committed, He knows all the sins I would have committed if I'd been in someone else's shoes. If I'd had the circumstances or the pressures or the temptations of someone else, he knows I would have sinned even more than I have sinned. And he loved me anyway. And he loved me anyway. If God is for you, 
who is against you and that who includes you. Let me close with these three practical words here. First is an example, an exhortation to follow Paul's example. We, we need to reason out and rest upon what the scripture says is true. We need to reason out and rest upon what the scripture says is true. I want to call your attention back to Paul's example here. I've had a conversation with a couple of people about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Some of you aware of that. That's, that's what Paul is doing right now. Notice what he says. He says, what do we say to these things? Hmm. Gives me the Holy Spirit. He prays for me when I don't know what to pray. I can't pray. He causes everything in my life, even the worst things, to turn out. To, he works them together for my good. Before the foundation of the world, knowing all about me, knowing every sin I would ever commit, every sin I would have committed if I'd been given the chance, he loved me anyway, predestined me to be like Christ, called me when he had no obligation to do so, gave me credit for living the life of Jesus. He's already glorified me forever. Huh. Now, that is the truth according to the Scripture. Hmm, what do we say to that? Well, at the very least, it tells me God is for me. Folks, we need to reason out and rest upon what the Scripture says is true. That regardless of what you see, regardless of what we think, regardless of what we feel, we need to come back, but what is the truth? When you feel as though you've come to Christ, you want eternal life, you love Jesus more than anything, but because of your sin, he will ultimately condemn you, I know how that feels. But what is the truth? The truth is, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. When you look at your circumstances and you feel God is against you, what is the truth? When your heart tells you God is against you, what is the truth? When your feelings and circumstances say that God is against you, what is the truth? The truth is, the Bible says God is for us. And if God is for us, who is against us? So when you feel very unacceptable to God, but if you've been justified, what is the truth? When you feel as though your life doesn't matter to God and he can't use you, what is the truth? I know what you feel. I know what you think. I know what you see. But what is the truth? We need to reaffirm, reinforce, rest upon what the Bible says is true over and over and over. And for right now, the emphasis, the, the truth is this. If God is for us, who is against us? Second, when God is for you, he's for you forever. When God is for you, he is for you forever. If he has been for you since before the foundation of the world, knowing all about you before you were born, knowing every sin you would commit before he called you, he will be for you forever. You have nothing to fear. You have every hope for the future. Regardless of how anything turns out in this life, everything, everything is going to end up better than you can possibly conceive. I was reading a book one day, and so from the result of that, don't doubt his love. Don't doubt his love. I was reading a book one day by the great Puritan theologian John Owen. I was just reading along, wasn't doing anything particularly great for me. I was on page 13. I can still see the page. I remember where it was on the page. And I read one sentence that took me from just being sort of neutral to, to tears. In one sentence. Here it is. He says, The greatest sorrow and burden... You can lay on the Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to Him. What do you think it is? <laughs> what do you think is the greatest 
sorrow and burden you as a Christian can lay on the heart of God? What's the greatest unkindness you can do to your Heavenly Father? Owen says, it's not to believe that He loves you. You can never be more unkind to God than to doubt His love for you. He gives His Spirit to pray for you when you can't pray. He takes the worst things that have ever happened to you and turns them into good for you. Knowing all about you and all your sins, He loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus and called you. And He gave you credit for the life of Jesus. And He's already decreed you're going to be like Jesus forever. And you don't think He loves you? God is for you. He's for you forever. Well, the obvious question to finish with then is, is God for you? Is God for you? He is for all who have come to Christ. And so if your answer is a humble yes, I do believe not because of anything within me, but because of what he's done for me. I do believe that God is for me. Then realize and reaffirm the truth of that and rejoice in what it means to be able to say, God is for me. Be ravished by the truth that God is for me. Find all the joy in that 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 is there. Find all the spiritual pleasure there is in saying, God is for me. Not because of anything in me, but because all that is in him. If you don't know, realize he is for all who will come to him. But he's against all who have not. For if you have not come to Christ, God stands against you. And he does so because you made yourself his enemy. Your life may appear to be going well. Better than others that you know. You may look at Christians and say, well, I'd rather have my life than their life. Look at the way their life is going. And you may try to avoid God in this life as much as possible, but one day you will stand before Him and to your horror you will realize what it means to have the invincible and almighty and holy God against you forever. But if you will come to Christ, you can be sure that God is for you. Regardless of whether you get the spouse you want, or the house you want, or the job you want, or the school you want, or the income you want, or anything else that you want. Regardless of all those things, when you come to Christ, God is for you. And if God is for you, who is against you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious promise. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to come for sinners such as we are. Thank you, Father, for the plan that devised it all. Oh, pray, I pray, Lord, that you would cause the hearts of all your people here today to to rejoice in the glorious truth that if they are in Christ, you are for them. And you will be forever. And if you are for them, who 
what can be against them? For those who are outside of Christ today, maybe they've been raised in a Christian home and have never rejected anything they've ever heard, but they realize today that they are outside of Christ. I pray you'd make Jesus irresistibly beautiful to them today, cause them to want to run in their hearts to Christ and ask for your mercy, not because of anything they've done, because of what Jesus has done. Thank you, Father, for this church. I pray your blessing upon it, its fruitfulness, its faithfulness. I ask all this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.